This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. Today we will be discussing the American sanctions on Iran and its implications for India. In early May this year, the United States withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the Iranian deal, and declared its intent to reimpose sanctions on the Islamic Republic of Iran. The first round of sanctions will come into force in August this year and the second round of sanctions will come into force in November this year. This will have a serious implications for India's energy security, not just for India's energy security. This will also have a lot of implications for uh, the geopolitics in the region and that will have direct and indirect implications for uh, India's national security. To discuss this um, and more, today we have with us in the studio Ambassador Casey Singh. Ambassador Casey Singh was India's ambassador to the United Arab Emirates and the Islamic Republic of Iran and he retired as a secretary in the Ministry of External Affairs today. He is a prolific writer, he is a columnist and a commentator on uh, foreign policy issues. Ambassador Casey Singh, welcome to the National Security Conversation. Pleasure. Uh, ambassador Singh, let me start by asking um, about a very interesting um, article that was provocatively titled and published in the Iranian newspaper called Tehran Times. The title of the newspaper was very interesting. It says, is the United States president officially in charge of India's foreign policy now? India has said that it will not go by the American sanctions. It will, it will only respect the United Nations sanctions. And yet, we are seeing a lot of activity in the industry about um, uh, pulling out of the oil and energy deals with uh, the uh, Iranian counterparts. Um, should the Americans dictate India's energy policy? Should India relent before the American pressure? Does India really have a choice? See, first as a general principle, obviously India has to follow an independent foreign policy. That's a given. I don't think any government, no government in India would be permitted by the opposition or the public opinion uh, to be seen as cottoing to US or to any other country. It becomes even more difficult for Prime Minister Narendra Modi uh, because he has a particularly hyper-nationalistic following on social media and otherwise, uh, which would be really even worse hit uh, than, say, if, uh, social media followers of a Congress Prime Minister right. uh, because they feel a sense of betrayal that the person they were following, why is he doing this? Now, why Iran should... I wouldn't take that article that seriously, but there would be some signal which would have gone out. Uh, because their foreign minister was here meeting uh, Sushma Saraj uh, around just before uh, we got uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley to come here. Right. Now, Nikki Haley obviously uh, was not just paying a social call on the prime minister, uh, must have come with an agenda on two, three things. One is relationship with Russia, relationship with Iran, and uh, finally, uh, commercial relations between the two countries. She must have thrown light on all these three subjects. Particularly, uh, her visit was also particularly important because the 2 plus 2 meeting, uh, which was decided on last year, had been postponed twice now, which is a meeting of the defense ministers and the foreign ministers of India and US. 
sitting together, what is called 2 plus 2. So the reason she came would also be in lieu of that visit, uh, so that a message could be sent to India. By the same time, we don't know when the 2 plus 2 meeting would take place. But you could also draw a conclusion, maybe a negative conclusion from this, that did they move the 2 plus 2 meeting uh, to enhance the pressure on India, therefore send Nikki Haley with a message, and then wait and see, uh, and bait us with the 2 plus 2 meeting, and say we will keep it later to see how India reacts. So should India buckle under the American pressure or not? Look, a sensible approach will be how to dodge the American pressure. We don't have to buckle. Uh, but at the same time, knowing how Trump operates, knowing Trump's method of uh, the way he's dealt with his, his immediate neighbors, the way he's dealt with his G7 colleagues, you know that there is a Trumpian method. And that is literally like a rhinoceros, uh, you know, rifling through the opposition. Now, if you know that is the way he operates, then the way is to dodge him rather than confront him and wait till he gets into some other problem somewhere else. We're already seeing uh, a stepping back by North Korea uh, and that would lead to some embarrassment because he's put his personal reputation in engaging Kim Jong-un in a summit. Now, if there is any stepping back by North Korea, uh, that embarrasses him directly. He's just going to a NATO summit on July 11, 12. Uh, we don't know what he does there. Uh, does he break up that thing or does he send a very negative signal to NATO? Uh, and then immediately after that, he's decided to meet uh, uh, President Putin, Russian President Putin. So he is busy with what he thinks is his agenda. So as he gets enmeshed in that, uh, that is the time to deal with him rather than frontly take him on. So you're saying at this point of time, India is not left with too many choices. India may have to abide by the American dictates on um, bringing down Indian oil imports from Iran to zero. No, I don't know how India is going to do it. But very simply, we can't be a China. The Chinese are multiple entities through which they'll continue to deal with Iran. The advantage that China has is that their trade is almost balanced. Whatever oil they import, the bouquet of goods and services they're able to offer balances that trade. India's problem is that our imports are far greater than the Indian exports to Iran. So as a result, last time what had happened when the sanctions were there, we built up a rupee surplus in India. Then we didn't know how to dissipate it. But of course, once the UN sanctions were withdrawn, that is when we were able to settle them through banking channels. Now, if that is not there, you can't have a barter type arrangement. A barter type arrangement can be arranged. You can... You need not have your public sector companies deal with, uh, with Iran. You can set up entities or have private entities deal with them. And I'm sure there would be entities even in the Gulf, uh, even amongst the allies of uh, US. There would be traders sitting in UAE somewhere or the other who will be dealing with oil because they are, they, they are going to let this opportunity go. Ambassador Singh, last time around when the sanctions were put in place, India did manage to circumvent. Um, does this mean that uh, the sanctions this time are characteristically different from the sanctions last time? No, in a sense, last time from 2006, you had UN Security Council sanctions. That made it more difficult because we had always said that we will abide by UN Security Council sanctions, but we will ignore any sanctions unilaterally taken by US. Now the problem is the UN Security, San uh, Security Council sanctions have not been lifted, uh, have not been undone. The relief that Iran had got from the Security Council has not been undone. Uh, nor can US do it because the Chinese and the Russians will not go along with that. So there are no UN sanctions. The only difference is that the one enforcing the American sanctions happens to be Trump, 
who has a history for strong arm tactics, for bullying, for forcing other countries to go by, uh, except sanctions which have been there in the past too. Uh, they had given us relief uh, for certain things. We could go to them and say, for instance, Chabahar. We could always explain to a reasonable American U.S. administration. So do the American unrelenting demands on India or dictates on India to cut down its oil imports from the Iranian um, regime, uh, from the Islamic Republic of Iran, does that mean that India has been wrongly putting all its eggs in one American basket? I don't, I think that may not be the correct, I don't think all our eggs are in the American basket. But I think India is closest to the United States today than any time in history. So we are told by the government, but I don't think so. That is not the situation. Otherwise, Prime Minister will not go to Wuhan and start wooing Xi again. He will not go to Sochi and start wooing Putin again. I think they realized that Putin has taken off the table an assumption which has been there from the time of President Bush, uh, which would be, say, from 2003 onwards, that U.S. was considering India as critical to the new security order emerging in Asia and to constrain a rising China. That assumption is off the table. Now, once that assumption is off the table or any other private signals which are being written about or talked about, about lack of personal chemistry that has emerged between Prime Minister Modi and President Trump on the sidelines of the uh, East Asia summit meeting or wherever, uh, that that is, has alerted India to the fact that US in term, Trump in terms of his priorities does not have India where his two previous predecessors had put India and that he is reimagining the world and therefore he has new priorities and in those priorities India figures lower. And the United States does not come across as a dependable ally for India in the, in, in the region. Look, it's always been said that India could never be an ally. Uh, the U.S. problem is that they have either dealt with Anglo-Saxon allies or from within the same Christian belt from Europe, uh, or they've had little potentates and emirates and kingdoms which depended on them. And therefore, their allies were always those countries which were not rival powers or emerging major powers were not their allies. And therefore, they're used to a certain subservience, a certain way of always agreeing with them or mostly agreeing with them uh, and them sort of giving the lead on strategic issues. That could never happen with India. And it's a mistake, therefore, to have created an impression of a special relationship because this problem was always going to arise that you will always have issues on which there would be dissonance. And if you got an overly assertive U.S. president, then your differences will come out in the open because for U.S., uh, even if you agree, uh, disagree 20% with them, is that 20% that matters, not the 80%. And particularly with somebody as transactional as Trump. Ambassador Singh, you wrote um, um, in the Asian Age on July 2nd this year, a two-decade-old strategic assumption that the United States considered India vital to an Asian security order in a post-9-11 world in which Chinese ascendancy is challenging US dominance seems no longer valid. That's exactly what I said just now. So that's what this government of Prime Minister Modi has discovered. And now they are scurrying to cover all the bases. And that is why from Doklam you go to Wuhan. You not only do that, you tell Air India to change the name of the Taiwanese airport, even though we've had the Taiwanese relations office here for decades. So you start now 
dishing out unilateral concessions to China. And we have yet to see what the Chinese have to give in return. So which means there's, there's an anxiety now visible to make sure that you're not caught out on a limb where the Americans are not with you and yet you've offended the Chinese and you have pushed Russians into other people's arms. So in other words, there was an inadequate and insufficient appreciation of the geopolitical realities around the region. What does that say about the establishment in New Delhi? You have a very seasoned uh, foreign policy establishment, the PMO and the MOD, all of that. Why is that there is then this inadequate appreciation of the reality? Well, we have no way of knowing how the decision-making process works in this government. But from outside, what appears to be happening is, is highly centralized uh, around the prime minister and around his personality. Uh, whom is he consulting? Uh, whose views does he... Uh, place weight on, we don't know. Uh, but essentially, this is a job of the National Security Advisor. National Security Advisor's job is not to be running operations in Pathan Court. Um, in fact, uh, Condoleezza Rice in her memoirs very clearly says it, that the National Security Advisor is not to take on any hands-on operation. National Security Advisor's job is at the tri-junction of defense, intelligence, and foreign affairs. And at that tri-junction, the National Security Advisor assesses the risks that are emerging over the horizon, puts up options for higher leadership, and gives policy options. His job or her job is in the office. It is not in the field running around to see if an encounter with Myanmar, with the militants in Myanmar has gone well, or whether you take the NSG to safeguard an airport. This is not the job of a National Security Advisor. That is the job, if, if at all, of an internal security advisor working with the state government. Uh, My apologies for this diversion from the main topic here, but you were part of the government during a previous BJP government. How were things done differently at that point of time than probably the way it is seen to be done outside today? Look, Mr. Vajpayee, I was fortunate to be his first uh, MEA spokesman because they changed the spokesman very quickly after he took over. And he was his own minister, so he was the foreign minister. So we were dealing directly with the prime minister. And for a year, I was the spokesman in the Ministry of External Affairs. Uh, there was a much better, much more coordinated uh, approach to policy because Mr. Vajpayee had picked up uh, Mr. Jaswan Singh, whom he valued very much. First, he was a foreign minister himself, but then he brought in Mr. Jaswan Singh, whom he valued very much. So he had two different... Uh, conduits through which uh, advice was flowing to him. He had Mr. Bajesh Mishra, who was both his principal secretary as well as the national security advisor and had been close to him and was a former diplomat. So he had that conduit through which advice was going. And then there was Jaswan Singh, who was capable of going and giving independent advice to Vajpayee. And then there was a cabinet committee on security, which at that stage had Ishwan Sinha, had Mr. L.K. Advani. So we had people of that stature and that background who were not only in a position to give advice, but even structurally, when I, for instance, when have you heard of the Cabinet Committee on Security of the Modi government ever meeting before or after a crisis? I've never seen a public notification of that. And the purpose really of a Cabinet Committee on Security, because we have to make a distinction between NSA in the US system who is the advisor to the president on national security. But that's not a Westminster form of government. 
in a cabinet form of government. And that is an accountable official because it's a, it's a sworn in post. Number one. Number two, the national security advisor in the Indian system is not present in the parliament. He's only present in the prime minister's office. The ones who are present in the parliament are his cabinet ministers, which means the cabinet committee on security is the one which should take the decisions because then they defend the government or they defend an attack on the government in the parliament. NSA just hides behind the PMO, the surface appearance of the PMO. Therefore, he cannot be a decision maker. Ambassador Singh, you mentioned about a re late realization in New Delhi about the need to reach out to China, uh, which probably explains the Wuhan summit. Do you think this late realization uh, will fractify in some ways that it is, is going to be successful vis-a-vis -vis China? I mean, this is especially in, co in the context of Doklam. Uh, after the mutual withdrawal, apparently the Chinese have come back to the uh, Dockland Plateau and are probably um, um, enhancing their presence there. So, in, 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 it probably means that the Chinese have seen through the Indian, Indian strategy making and, and the Indian reactions and have sort of uh, decided to um, increase their presence there. What does that, what does that, what does that mean for India in, in the, in the long run? It's possible that if you go running back to the Chinese, the Chinese are not going to take it. Uh, as goodwill extended, belated good, goodwill on the part of India, but India cornered, which is now coming to them. Surely that is how China would be expected to treat India. Uh, surely that is how Putin would be expecting to treat India. Because Putin today needs India much less than India needs Putin. Because he is having an American president woo him and come all the way to Helsinki uh, to talk to him. When the European allies, the NATO allies, none of them understand or within the US, uh, within the United States itself, they do not understand how a president whose conduct is being investigated for possible collusion of his electoral process with Russia to steal an election, and that inquiry is still on, and he's going to be having a summit with Helsinki, uh, a summit with Putin at Helsinki. Ambassador coming back to the China question, where did India go wrong? Where did the Modi government go wrong with China? I think Modi government has gone wrong because if Mr. Modi is going to behave as if history started in 2014 and there was no diplomacy before that, there was no relationship with any other country, I think foreign policy is a continuum. It's a river that's flowing. Each prime minister comes in, he can bring in certain themes, he can emphasize certain themes, he'll have a change of style. Mr. Modi brought in a novel, more theatrical, more personalized style that you have to grant him. Uh, now, having brought that, he began to confuse what was theater with what is reality. Uh, theatricality always has a role in diplomacy, but diplomacy, diplomacy can't be all theater. Uh, and I think when you start confusing the two and you don't read between the lines and you over hug some people, you under hug certain people, then you're, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're causing dissonance in your processes. Ambassador Singh, let's come back to the Iran question and the American sanctions on Iran. How will the American sanctions on Iran frustrate India's Afghan and Central Asian policy? Uh, I'm, I'm talking directly in terms of the um, Indian developmental projects in uh, Chabahar. Um, and the, um, the Chinese project in, in Gwadar. In 2016, for example, India signed a 500 million agreement to develop two terminals uh, in Chabahar um, and uh, as part of a trilateral pact with Afghanistan and Iran. All of that is going to go down the drain with the American sanctions. Is that, is that correct? Look, we'll know. Uh, 
what you are reading in the newspapers, they are sending signals out that Americans will be able to see the Indian point of view on Chabhar. We don't know they, whether they will or they won't. Uh, but the question is, will the Iranians see Indian point of view? Mm -hmm. Now, if you say, I'm sorry, I can't buy, buy oil from you because that, that I must do to please the Americans. But please let me develop Chabhar. Then you don't understand Iran. Right. See, the Iranian, it's, it's, it's a state where decisions are taken always from a strategic point of view, not from a commercial point of view. And therefore, if you go with them, this thing, and that is why the going back to the article uh, you were mentioning in Tehran Times, they're sending a signal that if you're not buying my oil, then why should I do with you what you want to do? So if you go to the Americans to get an exemption for Chabahar, which is of no interest to Iran, or very minimal interest to Iran, mm -hmm. then why should Iran let you get that exemption? They will hold that back and say, go and get the exemption for oil. You, you are ambassador to Iran. Um, do you think there is enough goodwill in the Iranian regime uh, for India? How, how do the Iranians view India, especially in terms of its uh, relationship with the United States? Um, and, and, and whether um, uh, will, and, and will, the, will the Iranians sort of try and understand the Indian position and the Indian no, dilemma? That's, that's not how Iran functions. Look, the closest convergence of interest we had with Iran was from the late 1990s to 2003. Uh, this is when Taliban was rising. 96, they captured Kabul. That's where a strategic interest converged fully. We worked together with the Northern Alliance to make sure that Afghanistan does not fall to the Taliban. Today, Taliban has a line open to Iran. Uh, today, Iran is a factor in Afghanistan which does not depend on India, and India cannot depend on Iran because their main interest is to the West, which is Iraq and Syria. So in Afghanistan, they have a holding operation. Uh, they are going to put their eggs in the Indian basket. So therefore, Iranians are, in that sense, a bit like Indians, are mostly tactical in their approach. Uh, because there's a balancing of interest between the IRGC, the clerical order, and the supreme leader presiding over it. But overall, it's the defense of the Islamic regime. And to defend the Islamic regime, anything and everything shall be done. Therefore, to think there's goodwill for India, actually there's a lot of ill will which was generated against India after 2003. Because they were getting punished for the nuclear program as India was getting rewarded and getting a nuclear deal with the US. So US very effectively used the nuclear issue to isolate India from Iran. That's a very subtle way of doing it. So we got a nuclear deal, and of course they ignored the fact that we did not sign the non-proliferation treaty, whereas they had signed the non-proliferation treaty, right, right. but that they ignored. Uh, and they said India, which has not signed the NPT, is being given a nuclear deal by America. And they who had signed the NPT were being uh, wrong for what they said was not a wrong program. We had just not declared it. Uh, so therefore the, the dissonance has been there since 2003. It worsened because we never uh, invited M.D. Nachat for his eight years as president. He stopped by on a visit, but he never made a bilateral visit. Uh, Rouhani may come. Prime Minister Munmohan Singh went there. Uh, but we've not really had what was agreed during the time of Vajpayee uh, and uh, Khatami, that there would be annual exchange of visits, annual visits from each side. But that stopped in 2003. Singh, you mentioned that uh, the Chabahar port is not very important for Iran, as opposed to, say, a commercial relationship with India. 
Is the Chabahar port really important to India? It has no strategic military value, as opposed to say the Gwadar port uh, offers a lot of strategic military value to the Chinese. So should we really lose our sleep over the Chabahar port? Look, I've said it in the past. I said, if you look at the map of Iran, you got Bandar Abbas. Bandar is incidentally Persian word for port. So all their yeah. ports have Bandar with it. So Bandar Abbas is the existing port, but that is within the Gulf. Uh, it's across the uh, Straits of Hormuz. This one is outside the Gulf. So that way, it's a port which does not depend on the narrow entrance into the Gulf. Um, but it would have strategic value if it wasn't Iran you were dealing with. Because the Iranians, when I was ambassador there and Bajesh Mishra was NSA, uh, the proposal has been there since then. But what we were wanting at that stage was that Iran should set aside a certain amount of acreage of land there where we could develop an economic zone. Because a port in isolation means nothing. Even if you have to feed things into Central Asia, you have to develop it really as a port, then you need an economic zone with it. Uh, so things are brought there. That gives you ability to manufacture, transship, add value, store, rather than shipping everything and then passing it through the port. Now, that Iranians uh, were not agreeable then, uh, even less agreeable now. All they've given you is access to two berths. But that doesn't mean they're going to allow your naval ships there. And off and on, they made noise about inviting Pakistanis, inviting Chinese. So they're playing you against those two, and you can't hold it against them. Uh, they would use all mechanisms to get the best value they can out of their port. And then they keep saying that they want to link it to CPEC, right. which is red rag to India. So now, if they do all that, uh, then, you know, what really is the value? So value only is that it probably reduces your distance for the access to Afghanistan by 100, 200 kilometers. And Martha, I think several countries are trying to circumvent the American sanctions against Iran. The Chinese, the Russians, the Europeans. Shouldn't India try and uh, join forces with these countries in order to explore ways to circumvent the American sanctions? and do deals with the Iranians. I think this government has to show, finally, the resolve to draw red lines with America. And I think that's what's going to be tested here. Are you willing to, after all, don't forget that Rouhani, Swiss president, visited Iran. Iranians have said Rouhani is fighting for his political life because the right wing is attacking him and said, you brought the American deal, uh, P5 plus one, and look, the Americans have walked out and they are attacking us. So what he has said is the deal is still savable, provided the Europeans can stand firm. Now, can the Europeans stand firm against the US? I don't know. Probably not. But Rouhani has been visiting Europe. But if Trump comes, into, um, comes to Europe, disrupts NATO, creates further disruption in his trade and other relationship with Europe, it provides an opportunity of Europe also drawing some red lines. And once a number of countries start drawing red lines, there's an opportunity for India. But you'll have choices to make because you cannot continue to cut out to US and at the same time expect that you'll be able to go along with the other side. So there are times when you have to choose. So therefore, founding fathers of this nation who created the non-aligned movement, which has been much maligned, had thought these things through. That when there are bipolar when there's bipolar contestation, then a third path is always the best. So we've always said we want a multipolar world. In a multipolar world, you'll have to start behaving like a pole. 
otherwise no one's going to treat you as a poor i think i'll come to that in a second that's that's my next question but before that um uh, will the american um sanctions against iran frustrate india's balancing policy towards uh, uh, west asia iranians on the one hand and the americans saudis and uh, the israelis on the other uh, so far we've been able to sort of uh, um, um walk the tight rope and well, it uh, all goes together it all goes together and that is why sheik abdullah bin zayed the foreign minister of emirates was here almost around the time mickey haley was here uh, and they came and announced a big refinery in combination with the with the saudis so what they are saying is you need oil we will give you oil so you're talking of energy security we will give you oil saudis will give it emirates will give it so there is a what trump has ended up doing is he split the gcc he split his there was already a split between shia and sunni that's been heightened further by turkey siding with qatar so you have qatar on one side turkey siding with them and you got iran with them opposite saudi arabia and uae on this side with the americans supporting them and the fighters in yemen uh, and you find countries like oman are playing a balancing role in it kuwait is silent and bahrain is quiet so it trump has ended up dividing the gcc there is a serious split in the gcc there is a serious split between shia and sunni and there is a, a serious split between turkey and iran on one side opposing saudi arabia and this thing now with these divisions will become more and more difficult for india to play a balancing role that the old way of gradually engaging all these countries not going overboard not wooing any particular one excessively had merit in it because when the, when their differences emerge then if you are too cozy with one it becomes very difficult to manage because the other side is already suspecting you of being too cozy with the other side in fact you wrote um, recently that narendra modi may on reflection discover that he has to revert to what the bjp has always detested a more non aligned foreign policy stance uh, but is that good enough in a trumpian world trump is not someone who understand the nuances of uh, the 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 a balancing strategy a, a sort of non alignment uh, sort of a strategy so what will you do i mean you, you, you know that's where you have to draw a red line now with some, with a bully you have to draw a red line and wait till and not too obviously a red line but you have to basically not do what he wants you to do which is what any bully tries this bully will get into trouble with someone or the other so i think at a moment globally forces are reconfiguring to deal with the trumpian phenomena uh picture will be clear over the next 6 months by the time the midterm elections come in america either he gets reinforced because he's able to carry on with his uh, rhetoric and his uh, and his diatribe pillaring immigrants pillaring the minorities now if he is able to sustain that uh, then we have two more years of further trumpian uh, dislocation of the global order or if he emerges weaker in november and the democrats democrats are able to gain um then i think we may have a window opening up but in any case by then you'll have the lok sabha elections uh, coming up on you so i think the time for really great foreign policy virtues great uh, balancing acts that is over so what i see is actually a very defensive game being played by prime minister modi now he went to wuhan because he does not want a summer chinese surprise because the chinese were they to repeat the doklam in a time and place of their choosing and they have 
advantageous position in certain places like we do in other places along the line of actual control, then it could be a major embarrassment for Prime Minister Modi in a pre-election period uh, where you can't eject the Chinese. Even if you go to war, you can't do that. And if the Chinese act in tandem with the Pakistanis this time, we should not assume this will not happen. Uh, it's a different game because they've got a huge investment in Pakistan. So anything which happens across the LOC, the Chinese can say it's affecting their investment. So it is no longer, none of those assumptions can be taken for granted, which is what the government may be discovering. A, that the Americans are, they've got your back and they'll come with you. That assumption's off the table. Two, the Chinese will not jeopardize their relationship with you. So you can keep doing whatever you want, surgical strikes, surgical strikes plus or with Pakistan. That may or may not be true and probably is not. Uh, thirdly, in a pre-election year, I don't think Prime Minister Modi wants to test these. And that's why he's gone into a defensive huddle. He's, he's on the defensive visa with the Chinese, but he's not on the defensive visa with the Pakistanis. As you correctly pointed out, what if the Chinese and the Pakistanis function in tandem with each so other? So that's why you take the Chinese out of the equation. Pakistan you need, and that's why the sacking of the PDP uh, government, Pakistan you need basically for domestic electoral use. And this will go on till May of next year, whenever the elections are there. So you isolate one. You don't want to open two fronts. And that is why Wuhan, and I think the Chinese know it. So it's okay with Chinese too, because they've got a trade war commencing with America. They also don't, don't want a southern flank opening up and causing a distraction. So, the, so these are troubled, chaotic times in the international system and there needs to be a lot of hard strategic thinking that New Delhi needs to do. I think it's too late to do any hard thinking. At the moment, they are in a huddle. So at the moment, they want no surprise foreign policy as I see it. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is a moment of basically saying, Pakistan, yes, let's not have any other surprises, even little Maldives. You don't want to literally even threaten them. Even though every few weeks, they embarrass you with a new decision, which is against your interests. Uh, you don't open your mouth. You don't threaten them. You don't even send two ships around Maldives. You don't do any flag flying around them. So if little Maldives can do that, then certainly they, they've all seen it. That as far as this government is concerned, their ability now to take decisive action uh, in any of these fields is limited because they don't want to open a new front when they are on the way to the Lok Sabha election. Ambassador Singh, pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you like this podcast, please rate and follow us. For regular updates, you can also follow our Twitter handle NSC with HJ or our Facebook page National Security Conversations with Happy Mon Jacob.